The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 11.30, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. President Joe Biden boosts health, education, in a one and a half trillion dollar budget request, and that's in addition to the two and a quarter trillion he wants for infrastructure. We check in with Congressman Brendan Boyle, Democrat from outside of Philly. First, though, let's get a market check from Charlie Pellet. All right, I'm Kevin Cerulli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. We begin tonight with the big story, which, of course, is that budget request coming in at more than $1.5 trillion in addition to the infrastructure proposal. I've got sound on this infrastructure proposal from Secretary Pete Buttigieg. He was answering questions about the budget as well as about infrastructure and how they're going to afford it. Take a listen to the sound on how they're going to afford it. Here he is. I'm convinced that this is the best chance in our lifetimes to make a generational investment in infrastructure, and that's what the American Jobs Plan does. The need is clear. It's growing by the day. After decades of underinvestment, we have fallen to 13th place globally in infrastructure. He went on to talk about raising taxes. Here's the sound on taxes. We've heard the president say that uh, this is going to be a process of negotiation, that we're going to take ideas on board, that there's going to be uh, refinement as we go. Um, I haven't heard a proposal that I consider to be better than the one the president put forward. Joining us now uh, with the all-star policy panel team are Bloomberg contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano and Congressman Brendan Boyle. He is a Democrat from Pennsylvania's 2nd Congressional District and represents parts of Philadelphia and the outskirts uh, of the city of brotherly love as well. All right, Congressman, great to have you on. How are we going to pay for all this, uh, for all the infrastructure, the budget? And I know the budget typically is just a messaging bill, but either way, you slice and dice it. It's a lot of money. Yeah, well, first, it's just always great to, to be on with you uh, and, and uh, everyone else there, Kevin. I also just have to point out that literally every Friday I have joined you guys, the Dow and the NASDAQ have been up. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> I, think, I think Bloomberg needs to start reporting on this. The um, boil effect! Put it in the terminal. Pull up the VIX boil chart. Go ahead. Boil go. That's the that's our terminal I, I, I functions. Think, I think you at least have to call it the boil on Cerilli's show effect. The, you know, don't tell yourself short. But, but thank you. Um, no, I, in in all seriousness, though, look, I I think that Pete in the clip that you played before um, absolutely you know nailed it on the head. I mean, this is a once in a generation opportunity to really go big. And last time I was on, we were talking about the American Jobs Plan. You can see how the, um, and just to be clear, I mean, what was released today is part of the annual budget process. It's separate from the American Jobs Plan, but you can see how they're complementary. I mean, it is a big bill. It is a lot of spending. And 
this moment is unique because it is the first time in my lifetime that the policy window is open for making these massive investments. I mean, think about it. The 1980s was government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. 1990s, even a Democratic president saying the era of big government is over. 2000s, you have two rounds of Bush tax cuts, and even half of the Obama stimulus was tax cuts. So at this moment, after COVID, there is an appetite among the American people, even registered Republicans, for this sort of spending. You know, let me let me follow up on this, because I, I think this is a really important point, folks, is even the divide amongst Republicans, uh, they're saying they don't want to spend two and a quarter trillion dollars. They're still suggesting that they need to make at least a, a you know, a trillion dollars worth of an investment in infrastructure. So just more broadly, taking Alf off the partisan analysis, but talking about it in a more geopolitical lens. America is in a position and has been for the last year where they are willing to spend and spend big yeah. for the first time in decades, right? Yeah, I mean, as I pointed out, this is the first time in my lifetime. Um, I mean, I, I cited the history from, you know, January 20th, 1981, all the way up until this past year. Uh, this is the first time we've really seen it. I also want to point out that when we talk, when we say and use the word Republicans, I think we have to be clear are we talking about Republican elected officials or Republican voters? Because right now, the Smart. polls show they are at odds. Um, Republican voters agree with us on the infrastructure bill, agreed with us on the American jobs plan. Um, polling obviously hasn't come out yet on, on this budget, but I, I assume it would show something similar. So we might not be getting support from elected Republicans in Congress. But, boy, there are a lot of Republicans throughout the country that are also are on board with this kind of spending. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about that spending, because uh, with spending requires revenue, you know. And I think if right. Joe Biden had come out, you know, prior to the election and said, look, my first hundred days, I'm going to announce six trillion dollars in new domestic spending. Um, I think that would have been a big campaign issue. And, and the question would have been asked of him at that time. So, Joe, how are you going to pay for that? We, we've, we basically saw the stimulus was just all, you know, sort of deficit spending. Uh, now we have a uh, $2.25 uh, trillion infrastructure bill, which is going to come out of 15 years of increased corporate uh, 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 taxes uh, at a higher rate. Uh, and, and now an additional $1.52 trillion that's going to come right out of tax revenue, which isn't going to be able to cover that amount unless we have some huge increase in, in revenue to the IRS. So, so the question I, I would have is, like, all these things sound great, as you say. I mean, people, when they hear a program, like, oh, yeah, that'll be great for my schools and absolutely for health care. But, like, when they find out that they've just had, you know, $6 trillion of debt, piled up on top of the deficit. Um, what, what do you think the reaction is going to be then? Because that really hasn't become part of the debate at this stage. Yeah, I, it, it's not just great for the, the things you cited. I would also point out it's it's obviously been great for the markets as well and, and well-received by them, as much as I made the implication it was somehow me appearing on the show. In fact, I, I think all of the stimulus spending that we're seeing has clearly had a you know, positive effect on, on what's been going on on the street. Now, you raise, I, I think, an intellectually honest question, which is, how do we pay for it? And if you're coming from a traditional economic conservative viewpoint, I, I understand the heartburn there. Um, it, in my view, 
doing this in a blended way in which some of it is debt finance. Well, I'm talking about infrastructure. Now, yep, yep. In which some of it is debt finance, knowing that there is a demonstrated return on investment, while at the same time we raise revenue, not to meet the entire total sum, but to meet part of it. So, you know, you cited it before the campaign, you know, someone said, uh, or Joe Biden were to say, well, I'm going to raise spending by $6 trillion. That in the abstract, you're right, probably wouldn't have, you know, won a lot of votes. But if you say, I'm going to make historic investments in our infrastructure, which have been neglected for decades, Donald Trump talked about it, failed to do it, I'm actually going to do it and work with Congress, and here's how we're going to pay for it, that 40% cut in corporate tax rate that corporations got dropping from the 35% rate to the 21%, we're simply going to put that back somewhere in the middle, probably at the 28% range. That alone raises $1 trillion over 15 years. I think that would have won him a lot of votes, and I think did in November. And I think that particular aspect, especially when you combine it with the data out there that so many corporations haven't paid anything uh, in taxes, boy, that is pretty popular right now. And again, that sort of populism even has support among some registered Republicans. So, Representative Boyle, um, I, I wish you were as good luck a charm on me as you are in the market. So <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to you. Um, as we know, these um, these presidential budgets, even when you have a, a party that controls Congress um, in larger numbers than Democrats do today, always yeah. go through a lot of, uh, ma- you know, a lot of machinations before they come out on the other side. So while we hear what Joe Biden and his team would like, what are you betting happens in Congress with this budget? What particularly do you think they are going to add to? For instance, you know, there's been a lot of talk today in terms of defense spending. Do you think Congress uh, pushes back against that? Uh, where do you think this thing changes as it goes through Congress? Yeah, well, let me speak about the House and and Senate separately on this. First, as far as the House, uh, you are right. I mean, this is an incredibly narrow majority, one of the most narrow in our nation's history. Um, But there's something counterintuitive about that. In some ways, believe it or not, it is easier to keep your team, so to speak, on the same page and voting the same way when everyone knows there really are no free passes, that Everyone has to vote for it, and if you don't vote for it, you would be the one who is sinking it. Um, I was part of the first term I served in Harrisburg in the State House a dozen years ago. I was part of a 103 to 100 majority then, and it was exactly the same thing. We knew that we couldn't lose one person, really, on any vote, um, and it ended up helping leadership enforce that sort of discipline. Sometimes it's more difficult when you have a bigger majority and people feel like, um, they can go off and, and freelance. Now, the Senate has its own unique situation, which gets a lot of attention because of uh, the filibuster. It does seem, both for the, um, the infrastructure bill as well as for the budget, you know, the reconciliation route will probably um, solve most of that. I got one more question for you. This is an important question, so we're going to blow the break, Chris. Um, so, you know, recently there was an article by my buddy, Al Weaver in The Hill, Representative Brendan Boyle decides against Pennsylvania Senate bid. Uh, And I know that you were carefully, carefully uh, weighing a decision to run for Senate. You're obviously a young politician, so it's not the first time it's going to be spec. There's going to be speculation about you running for higher office. Uh, But 
in all honesty, I, I, I remember asking this question several years ago to Senator Elizabeth Warren when I interviewed her as she was weighing uh, running for president. And I said, too many times we in the media, we just ask a politician, oh, it's like it's like a it's almost like a cute question that you have to check the box that you ask. Take us into the window of how an actual legislator, an actual policy wonk like yourself makes a decision about whether or not to run for office. Boy, that's, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, it would be too long to describe kind of how I originally made the decision that I was literally going to devote my life to public policy and public service. It actually revolves around 9-11, and I was working in, in management consulting in the private sector, and that afternoon was the day I decided that I would go back to school for public policy and move back home to Philly. Um, uh, so probably like a lot of people my age, 9-11 had, had a, a real impact. Now, specifically on, on the Senate, um, it was a tough decision because, you know, an open seat for the United States Senate does not come around um, all that often, and obviously it was something I was very interested in. On the other hand, I really enjoy what I'm doing now. I'm in my fourth term. I'm on the Ways and Means Committee, vice chair of budget. I played a, a really active role in the various COVID measures that passed over the last 12 months. But when you combine that with the fact that I have a pretty young family, um, to spend the next year and a half either on the road or even then when I'm home, spending my whole time on a campaign and fundraising um, was not something I wanted to do. Uh, my daughter is seven, is in first grade, and I'm young enough that I, I feel like there will be other opportunities uh, down the road. There definitely will be. Congressman Brendan Boyle, it is a privilege, my friend, to interview you on this day in particular. He is a Democrat from uh, Philly. Uh, and from Montgo, uh, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Thank you. I'll catch up with you next week. That's Congressman Brendan Boyle. Let's reset here. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I'm accompanied by the Bloomberg Politics Policy All-Star Panel Team, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. Jeannie, you know, it really is fascinating to hear from an actual legislator who's in the meetings, not trying to go viral, but actually doing the legislative work to get a really fascinating glimpse into how they're actually getting the, the the negotiations through it is and I, I you know I know he had to run I wanted to ask him about some of that because you know one of one of the representatives from New York where I live is Tom Swazi also on ways and means and I am curious as you know Tom Swazi one of the people who says no salt you know no infrastructure <laughs> bill um, I'm curious <laughs> I'm curious as of course important to people in blue states not everybody around the country but I, I'm to your point it's fascinating to hear how these negotiations you know unfold over something as big. I mean, we're talking about the budget today, but of course they've got this massive infrastructure bill to get through. So an enormous amount of work to do in Congress. And I thought it was also fascinating your last question to, to Representative Boyle about his decision, because of course there's a, a, a number of seats that are opening for 2022 and a lot of representatives in his position making this tough decision to run or not. And I'm always curious about the amount of time they have to raise money to do that. That. You know, he's kind of like the Rocky politician. I mean, he upset. <laughs> Rick, do you remember this? He upset oh, yeah. the mother-in-law of Chelsea Clinton. Remember that? I mean, he pulled off an upset back in 2014. He beat a Clinton. A lot of Republicans would have liked to have seen that happen. <laughs>
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Right. Yeah, he'll be a comer in in the future. I think that uh, we we haven't heard the last of uh, of of Congressman Boyle and his uh, political uh, uh, aspirations. He's right, though. I mean, you 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 got to take the opportunities when they present themselves because you never know somebody wins this seat and has it for the rest of their life. You know, and so um, it's it's a very difficult decision for these guys because. You know, he's good at what he does, right? And he loves his district, and he's having a big impact in the majority in the House. I mean, it's hard to say uh, I'm going to, you know, take a shot at potentially not being in Congress next year if I don't win this election. And uh, and so uh, I, I don't I don't I don't minimize the impact that those kinds of things have on the family and and their decision making. Uh, it's a it's a tough call. But Rick, yeah. can I ask you a quick question? For having run so many of these campaigns, what would you say percentage wise somebody like Boyle would have to spend raising money well, if he decided to run for Senate? Trillions. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as what's currently in the budget in the Biden administration. <laughs> Well, I mean, it Slightly had to be several millions. I mean, especially in Pennsylvania. Oh, a Senate yeah. seat. Yeah. A Senate Jeez, seat in, in, in Pennsylvania is a $25 million fundraise, uh, not counting PAC money and, and super PACs. So, so you want I mean, to talk he, about time. <laughs> to, no, to, no. It's I mean, basically committing the next year, uh, this year, uh, to being out on the rubber chicken circuit, uh, assuming you're still <laughs> allowed to do circuits. Uh, to raise money. And it's even harder, you know, in sort of this, you know, p- pandemic period where, you know, you got to yeah. do a lot of this stuff. The by virtual Zoom. fundraisers. If there's only one thing more awkward than going to fundraisers, going to a Zoom fundraiser. And by the <laughs> oh, way, yeah. Matt Shirley, our producer, is very confused. He, he means the rubber chicken dinners. When you go to the a dinner, Matt, <laughs> he's our producer. He's looking at, he's like, he's thinking of like the comedic tool of a rubber chicken. No, no it doesn't squeak when meant. you squeeze it. It doesn't squeak. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, okay, it's Matt. just we, the thing you put in your ballet glad we cleared that up bubs all right let's go back to amazon because that's also dominating how's that for a pivot uh dominating the conversation today the national labor relations board has not yet released an official final decision on the employee-led push to unionize the amazon plants in uh alabama but experts told abc news that a vote outcome in favor of unionizing is an uphill battle Earlier today, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked point blank, point blank about Amazon at the briefing. Uh, take a listen uh, to, to, to the sound on Amazon from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. The president uh, has said that whether to organize a union is a worker's choice. And uh, the National Labor Relations Board has a process for ensuring there is an accurate count of the votes cast in selection so that we can know what choice the workers have made. Jeannie, I think that we in the media have to do a much better job of explaining the differences and similarities within the labor movement. For example, teachers unions are a lot different than the debate that's being had in Alabama, right? 
It's true. I And, you know, I think it's one of the areas that the media doesn't give a lot of focus to, which is the whole area of labor. And, of course, unionization pushes like this can be complicated. You know, one area that, you know, Rick mentioned yesterday, the fact that they're doing this in a state and an area in which it's, it's not a huge surprise that a union may not prevail. The other, you know, another side of this story is that there is a structural advantage for employers in this country when it comes to unionization because of the way our labor laws have been written. And that's something, speaking of Congress, that Democrats can step in and try to change while they're in control of Congress. I'm not convinced they will, given everything on their plate. But it's those kind of structural disadvantages and the geography here that help explain a loss like this. Um, And that's what you have to address as you move forward if this is where people want to take the country. Rick, uh, as Josh Edelson reports on the Bloomberg Terminal, Amazon's win is defeat for labor movement now grown used to them. Unionizing the company's Bessemer, Alabama warehouse became a rallying cry for worker advocates, but that wasn't enough. Is this a trend or is this a one-off? No, I mean, look, Alabama, we talked about this yesterday. Uh, I stuck my neck out saying no no way would a union penetrate Bessemer, Alabama workforce, right? And whether it's Amazon or any other. Look, I mean, Alabama's a right-to-work state. I mean, they that, what that means is there are actually statutes on the books uh, saying that you can't require union membership in order to be an employee. They go out of their way to dissuade you from being uh, a union employee. It's it's it and 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 so we've seen the decline in union membership over the last two decades pretty consistently. And so the question is, can the Biden administration, I guess, you know, rebound the union uh, bug and make it more popular? Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't have staked out my 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 first big challenge in in a right to work state like Alabama. So uh, I don't think you can make any conclusions other than Alabama was a right to work state last year. It's going to be one this year and it'll probably be one next year. And just to be clear, uh, the vote counting is still underway. Amazon had one thousand six hundred and eight no votes, which is a majority of the more than thirty two hundred ballots that were cast. And so the loss, uh, with Amazon already well ahead in the tally, uh, the union is pledging to appeal the results. And the stored apple bomb, RWDSU president, the union president, said, quote, our system is broken. Amazon took full advantage of that. And we will be calling on the labor board to hold Amazon accountable for its illegal and egregious behavior during the campaign. But make no mistake about it. This still represents an important moment for working people and their voices. Will be heard, Jeannie. And this is such an important point. Speaking of what the media can do is just what you're doing, which is to underscore how these companies, and I'm not, you know, nothing against Amazon, but how these companies have the upper hand when it comes to punishing, threatening, retaliating against workers who try to organize and working aggressively to campaign against these unions. Workers are, uh, you know, really, uh, really on the losing end when it comes to the power uh, here, hence the need to unionize. And the media can do a good job of showing how this works so that there is a push potentially to change these laws which allow this. Where's the next? Do we know? I mean, where is the next union fight, Rick? And and I'm not not trying to, you know, I know it's a tough question, but are there other potential dynamics that plays? It seems that Amazon has really become, for the far left, uh, where they're putting their focus on in terms of the union issue, not just in Bessemer, Alabama, but elsewhere as well. 
Yeah, I think that's actually the reverse. I think you look at states like Michigan, yeah. um, where they, uh, unions around the automobile uh, uh, manufacturing business have been so strong historically. But as that industry has changed and, and frankly, uh, taken a lot of its labor force out of the state of Michigan, not in small reason because of increased costs of uh, union workers, um, uh, as to whether or not they want to be able to attract additional uh, employment opportunities where corporations would come in there and, and don't want to be uh, required to have a union. And so I think that's actually going to really test the system. Can unions keep hold of the territory that they already have as industries change and and manufacturing changes, you know, where in many of these places, uh, robotics is starting to take over the supply chain. And, uh, and, and, and the jobs that, that would have been a union job before, which were manual labor, are now becoming more technically yeah. su- you know, superior. All right, coming up, we're going to head across the pond and talk about the analysis of the U.S.-U.K. special relationship, of course, is the passing of Prince Philip at Windsor Castle. I'm Kevin Cerulli. This is Bloomberg. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by the Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zaino. Really sad news uh, today as Prince Philip Rick passed away uh, at Windsor Palace. Reading from The Sun, uh, the Queen has expressed her, quote, deep sorrow, end quote, after her beloved husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, passed away peacefully at Windsor Castle. Just, I mean, the royals have obviously been in uh, the the global conversation, especially in the culture in recent years, candidly. Uh, as a new generation, it seems, uh, becomes familiar with them. But is, today is really an opportunity to just look and examine the special relationship between the United States and the UK, but also to just honor the legacy of this current leadership of the monarchy. Yeah, I think that uh, it's really interesting to look back on the trajectory of Prince Philip's life, 99 years of, uh, of, of really service as a royal, uh, and, uh, and what the relationship has been like over that 99 years uh, with the United States. And it's really been transformational for the world, right? If we had not had uh, a relationship with Great Britain before World War II, what would have been the outcome? Uh, wow. If we hadn't had the close relationship between Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan against the Soviet Union and the spread of communism, what would have happened? Um, you know, our best ally on the war on terror, if, if we weren't allies, what would have happened with the war on terror? So you, know, you look at these big, chunky, you know, geopolitical events of our lifetime, of Prince Philip's lifetime, and you wonder, wow, uh, he's really overseen a relationship uh, been a part of it that has been the most transformational in modern history of the world. Uh, Jeannie, U.S. President Joe Biden joined world leaders in, in paying tribute to Prince Philip. He was 99 years old. Uh, President Biden praised his decades of public service that Rick was just uh, eloquently describing uh, and sent condolences to Queen Elizabeth II. He said in a statement, uh, he said in a joint statement with First Lady Jill Biden, quote, Prince Philip gladly dedicated himself to the people of the UK, the Commonwealth and to his family. His legacy will live on not only through his family, but in all the charitable endeavors that he shaped. Other leaders who paid tribute included German Chancellor Angela Merkel and EU President Ursula von der Leyen. 
and uh, French President Emmanuel Macron said that the Duke lived, quote, an exemplary life defined by bravery. Wow. And one of the things I think we forget about Prince Philip was his dedication to a cause that really many people didn't embrace, at least in our country, until maybe the 1960s, 1970s, and that's the environment. He was somebody who came out very, very early, and we see this in his son as well, as a, you know, a really strong environmentalist. He warned about greenhouse gases and other things. And on, on a, you know, a personal note about his personal life, I did not realize until I read his obituary in one of the newspapers that he and the queen met when they were 13 or 14. 14 years old and you know wow. what a love story that is um you know it, it, there's been you know some great political love stories that we talk about ronald reagan of course and, and nancy reagan but you know from the age of 13 or 14 to 99 um what a relationship they have had and of course the work he has done both publicly and privately um you know and and of course transitioning now with his children and his grandchildren to a time he probably couldn't have imagined when he was born Rick, this comes at a time of, as Thomas Penny on the Bloomberg Terminal, I, Tom, I really think Penny's article captures captures the sentiment of what's in the zeitgeist, to quote Tom Keane, uh, right now for, for the monarchy. Philip's death, Penny reports, quote, comes at a moment of profound change for the royal family. Uh, he goes on to allude to, to some of the other uh, items that are in the conversation about the monarchy. I don't want to link the troubles of the monarchy to, to, to Prince Philip, but I do want to talk about this crossroads for the monarchy as it looks at the decade ahead. How, where, do, where is the monarchy 10 years from now and what role do they play in geopolitics? You know, it's hard to say. Um, it really you know, is, there's right? A, there's a school that says, hey, they're the greatest uh, chamber of commerce ever created by man, right? I mean, like, you know, wow. the reason people come to go to uh, visit the UK and London is not up for the fantastic food there. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> British, right? I never really <laughs> liked, the, yeah, fish and chips to me, candidly. Yeah. You know, I'd rather, uh, I just don't get it, but go ahead. Yeah, the first thing somebody asks you is say, oh, I was in London. Oh, did you go by the palace? Did you see the queen, yeah. right? I mean, like... And, and so, or the crosswalk where the Beatles walked. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have that too, Penny Lane, uh, yep. those places. Uh, yep. But but I would say this queen really is the transformational queen. You think about when she took over for the 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 her father, the king, and what a different monarchy that was where they actually still had some level of constitutional power. And, and, and she oversaw the more modern monarchy – and, 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 and the future is the younger generation. And so, you know, this is something that I think is, will be fascinating to watch in real time. Uh, our hearts go out to the royal family, all of them, uh, every generation uh, over the loss of Prince Philip. But it does make us stop and think about their contribution, which has you know, uh, been very favorable for uh, the United Kingdom and many of the other uh, countries that associate with the British uh, uh, monarchy. Jeannie, I'll give you the last word on this. 
Well, I think we're in a real test um, to see can a monarchy survive in this sort of, you know, 21st century uh, speaking of the media in this media environment. That was something that Philip had, Prince Philip had a lot of difficulty with, understandably so, as does the rest of the family. And, you know, they are going to have to work hard to make the case that, as as Rick said, that the monarchy is good for, for Britain. Um, unable to make that case, it's hard to see why they keep investing in it. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Fascinating, fascinating. It's the only thing my family on the Cirilli text chain today was blowing up over uh, all of the dynamics of, of the monarchy. They have definitely captured the interest of the world these past few weeks. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Much more with the All-Star Policy panel coming up. This is Bloomberg. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Shout out to the legendary team, our executive producer, Christine Barada, and our producer, Matthew Shirley. Uh, I want to welcome to the all-star policy panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Sean Dave, Jeannie... I, Jeannie, I'm tongue-tied. Jeannie <laughs> Sean Zeno, as well as Rick Davis. And we're going to go old school for a minute and uh, and end this with... What is on your radar? I want you to tell me one thing that is coming up, Jeannie, that is on your radar. Well, I, I am fascinated. And, um, you know, Rick and I are not married, so I see. What, <laughs> it happens to us. Jeannie, right, it's Friday. Wait, Staking out some turf here, Jeannie. Uh, Jeannie, I'm, I'm again tongue tied. <laughs> well, I don't know what to say, Christine. Rick, Rick I hope my wife Karen is listening. No, uh, yeah, I, Rick, and you have to admit, I have been called your last name many times, True. right? Yes. I, oh, okay. Now I get it. Yeah. I hope Anthony Mancini's listening. Go oh, ahead. Oh, my gosh. Jeannie. Yes. Let me explain. It's just, you know. Um, so, Back to seriousness. Um, I am fascinated by um, the, the calls that have been coming for the retirement of the Supreme Court justice. And this is something that mm. is, you know, something I watch. I teach a lot of Supreme Court. And the fact that we have seen a concerted push now, not just to pack the court, but for a retirement on the court amongst yeah. Democrats. Um, this is something that, as we all remember, there was was a push during the Obama administration for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to retire. She obviously did not. And, and that, of course, became something that, um, you know, uh, Democrats um, have, you know, talked a lot about in the aftermath and having seemingly decided that they're not going to let this happen. They have been pushing Stephen Breyer to resign. So it, I'm curious and going to be watching how that pans out. And of course, the president's new commission on potentially packing the court or at least investigating it. And we have sound on that from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. She was asked about President Biden's tapping a panel to look at whether there should be more seats on the U.S. Supreme Court. Psaki denied that there are any immediate plans to add more justices. Take a listen to the sound on SCOTUS. 
The panel is being asked to do a number of, take a number of steps, including the pros and cons on exactly that issue. But they will also be looking at the court's role in the constitutional system, the length of service and turnover of justice on the court, justices on the court, the membership and size of the court. Uh, Rick, I mean, I don't think that he's going to ever be able to add Supreme Court justices in his term. Uh yeah, I, I, I would doubt it. I mean, you know, with these slim majorities uh, in, in the Senate, um, uh, it, I, think, I think it just functionally becomes uh, a problem. Uh, I would say I think this is just a nod to the left to keep them happy about the idea that they can somehow overturn the uh, number of Supreme Court justices that Donald Trump put on uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court and potentially have some impact later on on the, the, the federal court system. But I, I agree with you. I think that this is a this is a long shot, but I think it's just a political nod to the to the rattle of the sabers on the left. And can I also I, yeah. I was just also going to add, it's also what it was in in FDR's time when he made this threat. It's a warning to the court. Stephen Breyer is right. You lose legitimacy potentially if you do this. But what happened when FDR did it? There was no packing of the court, but there was the switch in time. And this is a warning to the federal bench, in my view, that they better be very careful to be above politics. And so. So I think that's what we're seeing here as well. Yeah, no, I think it's it's fascinating. The Supreme Court uh, has has definitely become one of those lightning rod issues uh, for progressives, and and it's it's a really a, a, an incredible debate that's a robust debate that's being had, and no doubt will be discussed in any type of primary season for the next cycle and beyond. I think Senator Joe Manchin's uh, column, though, in which he called for bipartisanship, is really uh, where he is at on this, and and so it'll be fascinating to see. Where all of that is headed, Rick Davis, what is on your radar? You know, I, I, as a defense hawk, I have to say that uh, the president, you know, presented this uh, huge budget uh, today, uh, uh, $1.9 trillion of uh, domestic and, uh, spending, and, and, and a flat uh, defense budget. So at a time when uh, we are all looking at uh, uh, this competition with China and Russia. We've talked on this prog- program repeatedly about issues related to our defense posture in, uh, in, in regards to those two what they call near-peer uh, adversaries. Um, it's shocking to me that, that, that we're going about this by basically signaling to Russia and to China that we're not going to we're not going to increase our investment in defense spending and and a 16% increase in domestic spending but basically a flat uh, uh, DOD budget I, I'm I'm watching the 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 storyline on that because I think it's going to hand Republicans a foreign policy tool that they didn't otherwise have well Rick let me ask you that I mean to follow up on that is that a political trap for the Democrats heading into midterms where on one hand they want to have they, they want to cut funding for defense but they want to you know, increase it for initiatives that are more controversial to be candid domestically, or I don't want to say controversial, but are more political domestically. Yeah, I think this is, we talked a little bit about this earlier in the show where the uh, Congressman Boyle was talking about how popular these spending programs are when you present them to voters. And that's true. You know, I mean, when you say free money, I mean, we're going to, we're going to fund all sorts of different things in your life. Uh, It's attractive. But when the administration takes a position that says, hey, you know, we're in a competition with these these countries like China and we have to do everything we can to ensure that they don't uh, 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 mess up our supply chain, um, uh, threaten our neighbors and otherwise 
make the world an unsafe place, but we're not going to invest in that at all. I think that's a political issue at the end of the day. I think it's more importantly a public policy issue that doesn't square with their rhetoric, and I think that's going to be an issue on Capitol Hill. But, Rick, do you think that um, this sets up what I think has been coming for a long time, which is a debate on how best to combat China? You know, Republicans Mm. have long said that it is investment in defense, as you've been talking about. What Democrats are saying is, you know, we need to also invest, as you know, in infrastructure. You know, China is prepared, you know, much better prepared Mm. as we go forward in terms of issues like broadband. And how can we we just can't compete with defense, but also have to do it in these other ways? Well, that's that's. That's what brings me to what's on my radar, which is Eric Martin's reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal. U.S. blacklists seven Chinese supercomputing firms, firms involved uh, in information and technology. The Commerce Department says that the entities are related to military efforts. This is, again, just a a thread that the three of us have been chronicling uh, for the past several months, a continuation of American policy, not of a partisan policy, uh, a continuation of the previous administration and a continuation for this one. The U.S. added seven Chinese supercomputing firms to a list of entities banned from receiving exports from American companies citing activities contrary to the national security or foreign policy interests of the U.S. The companies were added to the so-called entity list. That, of course, prohibits American firms from doing business with them without first obtaining a U.S. government license, Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo having jurisdiction over that. So that right there, uh, again, we talked about this yesterday with the National Intelligence Council report, uh, a continuation of, of a nonpartisan issue for American policy. All right, folks, I have a programming note. Rick and Jeannie, uh, sound on is yours. <laughs> I really appreciate everything. Today is my last day at Bloomberg after nearly six years. I want to thank everyone who has listened and watched and supported me uh, on this journey. It really was a journey over these past six years. And I especially want to thank every single one of my colleagues uh, for this incredible, incredible experience. It's time for me to try something new with a new project and a new role soon and more to come. But I really, Rick and Jeannie, I want to thank each of you, Jeannie, first, uh, for for just really supporting me on this endeavor. It has been uh, something that I am incredibly, incredibly grateful for. Casey, I just can't imagine not <laughs> not having you on the show. Yeah. Um, and thank you so much for you've been so welcoming and supportive to me. And, and, and of course, I'm so excited to see about your next project um, and what you're doing. And when I am in D.C., yes. if you're still there, we are going to yes. go out for a Coke or something. Wherever or some- I am, <laughs> we will we will meet up. Uh, Rick, I, I really want to thank you as well uh, for everything. I told the team before I said I'm not Tom Sawyer. I feel like I'm Tom Sawyer watching my <laughs> funeral, but it's not that serious, but I I, I do want to say thank you, Rick, for everything as well. Well, Kevin, I can't say how much I've enjoyed working with you. It's been an interesting path. I I will remember (laughs) this period of time during the elections and uh, and, and this COVID period uh, for the rest of our lives. And and you've played an important part of it. I've learned a lot from you. You're a consummate professional, and I know you'll just knock it out of the park with whatever endeavor you you continue to do. Well, I appreciate that. And you guys make it fun and uh, just have fun. That's the, the best advice I ever got. Uh, was to just don't, don't be allow yourself to have some fun, but I don't really. All right, enough of that. We still have a minute. We finished. We finished early. See, I was so nervous. I told Christine Murata. I said I really hate being the story. I don't want to do this. Kevin, we should but, have said nicer things. It took longer. I, well, order. there's not. I guess. I guess. I guess it's hard to fill dead air, huh, Anthony? <laughs> 
Jeannie, uh, I'll give you the last word. Okay, Casey, I am going to miss you so much. And as Rick said, you have been the voice of the radio and TV at Bloomberg Politics for so it's long and reported on so many things. And, you know, imagining it without your voice um, every day is, is, is just hard for me to sort of oh, swallow. Well, everyone's replaceable. And Kevin, can I ask yeah, you a question? Yeah, go, I mean, go. so exciting. Uh, what's the one moment that you remember most about your tenure? I got to take my mom to the White House. Oh, that was that's a very special memory. And it's that's... a blessing to have that memory. So thank you to everyone for supporting me. And um, thank you to my parents as well. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.